You're listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast, where we believe that every teacher deserves a coach, and every coach does too. I'm Chrissy Beltran, an instructional coach, resource creator, and coffee enthusiast. And I'm your host. Stay tuned for practical tips and honest coaching talk that will help you coach with confidence. This is Christy from Buzzing with Miss B, and I'm really excited that you're here to listen to this episode today. Um, one of the things that you may have been reading a lot about lately, but something that should be important to us always, is anti-bias education. And you may be wondering a little bit about what that looks like. Um, you may have read recently about the difference between you know, racism and bias and what that looks like and how that plays out in a school setting. And because we are coaches and we're instructional supports, we can kind of set the direction for our professional learning as a campus. Or we can support initiatives on the campus that would help our teachers become aware of these issues that impact their, their teaching every single day. So I think it's so important for us to become knowledgeable in these areas of anti-bias education and to help us do that today, I have Kay Valdez of Primary Cornerstone here. She's going to help us learn about the idea of anti-bias education and how it can impact the support that we provide our teachers. Kay, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey through education, kind of introduce yourself and what you're working on now? Absolutely. Um, so I am a first grade teacher in the state of Massachusetts. Um, and, you know, at first I didn't want to become a teacher. <laughs> I actually was studying for something completely different. Um, and in order to pay for school and to pay for school books, I just got a, a position as a para. And then I just fell in love with the profession. And that's how it ended up happening. I was three years in. Um, I was a pre-med biology major. Oh and yeah. Years, yeah. <laughs> and I was three years in and then decided to start all over again. And I have never looked back because um, I feel like teaching is one of those things where you're, you're just like born for it, right? Yeah. So yeah, so right now I teach first grade and I do have um, the opportunity of working very closely with my district, which I really enjoy doing because I get the opportunity to work with a lot of other teachers um, within the school system. So um, as of this fall, our district is going to be launching a dual language program. So I have been in the background working on that and um, helping to develop the curriculum for that. And it's actually where my passion for anti-bias started um, because it's just such an important concept within dual language. And then it's kind of just navigated into all other areas of my life and education. Um, so that's one thing I'm working on. I'm also going to school right now. I have my master's in math education, but for some reason, I don't know, I've kind of just like navigated towards literacy. So I teach um, literacy PD in my district, even though I'm a math major. So I don't know how that <laughs> happened. Uh, yeah. And so with that, um, now I did go back to school and I am pursuing principal licensure. I'm working with an institute here in Massachusetts that works really closely with UMass Boston with a lot of professors from Harvard. So it's just been such an, an amazing experience and just feel very blessed to be part of that. Um, so we'll see where this leads um, and where my career leads me with this, you know, with going to school um, and studying to be a principal. Um, the other thing is I'm really involved with my union and 
and this is not this is not a PSA, but um, <laughs> being involved with the union is very important because you get to advocate a lot, um, not just for teachers, but for student learning. It's so important. And um, one of the things my union is doing is we're leading a social and racial justice committee. Um, so that's really been helpful to get involved in a lot of the different schools. So I'm working in one school. Um, but it gives me the opportunity to be able to reach out to other schools and have um, changes happen district-wide rather than just within my own campus. That's great. I firmly believe in having PSAs just throughout the day. Just everyone should know. <laughs> <laughs> this makes, yeah. you know, <laughs> a tiny soapbox for just a couple seconds and then you hop off and go about your day. That's what I think I do in my daily life too. People in my life are probably like, okay, yes, we know. Thank you. But <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm in agreement with that, that philosophy. So I saw that you had presented for the Total Teacher Summit on Anti-Bias Education because I was scrolling through Instagram <laughs> and I came across your post. And I think, you know, the people that um, last year I hosted that um, anti-racism campaign after we had a um, horrific you know, shooting here at, at um, in El Paso at this Walmart down the street. And so down the street from, I mean, it's like less than a mile away from my house. I can walk there. And so it was such a big event. And I think that the people who participated in that campaign, there were 22 different bloggers who shared resources and ideas. You know, they pop up the most in my feed because I, I follow, you know, I see everything that they put up. And so I think that's why you popped up towards the top. And and I saw that you were, you were sharing at that summit and I thought that was so such an interesting idea. Um, so can you introduce us to the idea of bias and anti-bias education? Um, yes, so you know a lot of people immediately um, because we're talking so much about anti-bias especially on social media um, I feel like there are lots of misconceptions so I like to talk about a little bit about what it is and what it is not because I think if we understand what it is not, it helps us to understand what it is. Um, and first and foremost is that anti-bias is definitely not a trend. Um, I know that a lot of us have been woken up to the realities of education. And so in, in doing so, sometimes we may end up doing something just for a period of time. And we have to know that anti-bias really is for the long haul, um, that it is not a performative thing that we do just for the time being. And it is definitely not just for educators who are BIPOC. So BIPOC is um, Black, Indigenous, people of color. It's not just for them. It's for everyone. It's for all educators to understand that we really have to move forward in creating anti-bias education. So in anti-bias education, it means that we are recognizing people's identity for who they are, whatever that may be. Um, it's also understanding people's differences and valuing those people in different communities. It is recognizing the acts of injustice and how they affect people in society and how that trickles down into education. Um, it is also actively speaking and taking action against systems of oppression, particularly because we are in education, um, the educational system, we have a lot of systemic issues within it. And so it's standing up for those things and speaking up even when it's uncomfortable. It is inclusive. Um, it is challenging stereotypes and discrimination, especially in the curriculum that we use. Um, and it is allyship and leading to co-conspiracy where we really stand up with and for um, those who are marginalized. So 
it is not just about race. It is not just about being nice. It is not just about having people of color do the legwork. We actually have to step up and do something about it. And one thing I have to add also, it is not saviorism. Um, a lot of people want to jump in and, and it's kind of like a natural thing. We have empathy. And so we want to jump in and we want to be supportive, but sometimes we do a little bit more harm than good when we jump in thinking we're going to save the population rather than walking alongside them, them and really listening to what their concerns are. Yes, I think that's such a great introduction of so many powerful ideas. Um, I've seen it used a lot, you know, ABAR, um, the acronym, we use anti-bias, anti-racist education. And so to kind of contrast that, I really like that, the way you defined it, because anti-bias accepts all the parts of a person's identity. And so it's, it, like you said, it's beyond race. It includes any other portion of a person's identity um, that maybe people yeah. have some bias against, that we have to work on that. So mm -hmm. I really like that. Um, you know, it's, it's um, I've recently been reading uh, White Fragility. So I'm a, I, I, the pro there are proper terms and, you know, I guess it's my identity so I can describe it how I like. And I have always called myself a heifer. <laughs> I'm happy. <laughs> um, <you> know, <laughs> I'm, I'm half white and half um, Mexican-American. And so I think that, you know, growing up, I was raised pretty much as a white person because my mom did most of the raising of us and she's white. And so my dad is Mexican-American, but we didn't live close to our family. We lived really far away. El Paso is a very, um, uh, it's, it's an immigrant community. It's a community of immigrants, but yeah. we didn't live here growing up. I didn't move here until I was in high school. And so a lot of my, wow. yeah, oh, that was a great time to move. If you have to move someone, definitely wait till they're 16 and move them all across like one of the largest states in the United States. That's the best time. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but I mean, the fact. Good to know. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> just a note, just a PSA. <laughs> so, so that's whenever I moved back to El Paso. I used to live um, in a suburb outside of Dallas. And so those are very different cultures. And moving to um, El Paso, even though I had visited, was a culture shock. It was very different. Um, I mean, it's, it's a border town and it, it's, it's my extended family lived here from both sides of my family, which was great. Um, but yeah, it, it took a lot of adjusting to get used to the culture here versus the culture that I grew up with in Dallas, which was um, a blend of different cultures, but people tended to, to present more of their whiteness if that makes sense, yeah. um, that community that mm -hmm. I grew up in. And so even though people, I went to school with kids of all different backgrounds, they we pretty much just were like, quote, Americans, if that makes, you know, like that white American, like image that you see, that's pretty much the way people acted, I guess, but their homes may have been very different. So if yeah. the curriculum may have been more anti-bias, perhaps we would have seen more of culture coming into the school than we saw, you know, as it was. So that's, that was an interesting, you know, yeah, and because people would have felt more comfortable saying, oh, well, yeah, that does represent me. And I can talk to you about these things that, that make up my home life that don't look like what my school life looks like. And so, exactly. Um, yeah, I feel like here there's more acceptance of the Hispanic culture, but there is a lot of bias in other directions, you know, because the majority of people, over 80% of people in, in um, El Paso are Latinx. And that's a lot of people. <laughs> so, so there's very few people of other, it's like 83%, I think. It's very few people um, of, of other backgrounds. And I mean, granted, even within the Latinx community, there's a huge 
diversity, but you know, it's beyond that. There's not a lot of, of diversity outside of that community and in this city. And so it's just a completely different experience, but I feel like in both situations, anti-bias education is valuable because it's going to open your, door, your, your brain, not only to the people who are in front of you, but the people that you never see. You don't see exactly. these people on a daily basis. So I'm really thankful that you're sharing this idea with us. So exactly. And you know, um, sorry, I interrupted. No, go ahead, please. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Tell me. Um, I, you know, I never said at the beginning, I'm a, La a Latina and, um, you know, I immigrated here when I was six years old and I grew up in an immigrant city. Um, so everyone, all of my friends in school, they were all Latinos also, yeah. but all of the educators were white and oh. all of the curriculum was from a white lens. So oh. even within our community, like we were all Latinos, but everything we were learning about had nothing to do with us and our culture. We didn't have access to, access to text that represented us or that had characters that looked like us. So, you know, it's really funny because the first time I was introduced to white culture, um, quote unquote, was right. when I went to college. Prior to that, I hadn't experienced any of that. It was only through my teachers. Um, so going into a space where then my friends from school were white and then going into a, a field that is mainly dominated by white women um, it was just such a huge culture shock. Like I was, I was, I just transferred into a whole different world and understanding that took a very long time because I had never had experience with that. Um, but it's so funny because I grew up with people who looked like me, but we never learned about ourselves. Yes. We learned about the other culture, but then I had to, but I had never actually experienced it. So, you know, it's a, it's a weird yeah. Um, <laughs> so many different complex, but yeah, mm -hmm. that's so interesting. But, and that's, I do feel like El Paso has done a lot in that area. We do have a university here, a university of Texas at El Paso. And so I think that that, that UTEP has done a lot towards getting, I mean, they're, they're a commuter college, Latinas, they live at home, right? They, we Latinx people live at home. <laughs> with their families a lot of the time and they are not sometimes they're contributing to the family economy and they are not able to you know go to uh, school out of state or out of the city even you know so we see a lot of of people of, of um similar to me that had responsibilities in their family as a young adult um like i used yep. to whenever i worked in college i gave my check to my mom i thought i didn't think anything of it i was like well yeah she needs it and i live here so why wouldn't I do that? But mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a common experience. I've told people that and they're kind of surprised. So, but to me, that makes total sense. You know, I'm like, I have three yep. brothers. To me, that was, that's also. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a good thing to do. And some people are like, oh gosh, they shouldn't have asked that of you. I'm like, um, they needed it. My parents needed it. They didn't have a lot of money. So, so that was, I think the university here has done a really good job of making itself supportive of the culture of the city. And so because so many people here are, you know, they have to drive to, to school, they do not get the school experience like you get in a college town or something like that. They, they really embrace that. And so we have so many educators, the majority of educators here are also Latinx, which is awesome because- um, oh, that, that is amazing. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it's actually, I, uh, it, it's great because the teacher population reflects the student population. And so in that way, they feel more comfortable bringing, you know, their own culture to school, the teachers do, and sharing that with students. 
Um, but again, like I mentioned, it's other cultures that we have to work on here in El Paso because it's a little bubble and people are so very used to that little bubble that it can be um, surprising whenever they have to inter interact with a person of a different background. And that's when you see stereotypes and that's when you see bias and that's when you see all the crazy right. thoughts that people get about people who are different, you know, so mm -hmm. different than them. So that's, that's where I feel like anti-bias education, it can be easy as a school where maybe 85% of the teachers are, are of, I mean, really here, a lot of people are Central American and Mexican American. And then where the kid, many of the kids are of the same background, it can be easy to feel like, well, we're not, who's, no, people are biased against us. So we're not biased against people, but we are. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like a human thing, right? That we always have to be working mm -hmm. against, especially in this country, but mm -hmm. certainly just humanity, we always have to be working against. So in order Absolutely. to, yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you for confirming that because it's, I feel like sometimes <laughs> in the conversations about race, I don't always see my city in those conversations, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. It, it's such a different experience living in a place where the majority of people are from the, you know, the global majority. And so it's like not, it's such a different, it's a different thing. Mm -hmm. um, so in order to really be providing anti-bias education, it's more than reading about Ruby Bridges, right? Because sometimes we see yes. people who will bring up, you know, well, we did this author study or we did this novel, this book study. And we, they, we have at one moment in the school year, we have introduced this idea with one text, right? So can you, and that's not, that's not the whole of anti-bias education. So can you tell me about the social justice standards that guide the work of anti-bias work? Absolutely. I am obsessed <laughs> with the social justice standards. <laughs> the teaching so much so that, what was that? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Is it the teaching tolerance standards that you that you use or is it a yes. different? Okay. Okay. Cool. No, teaching tolerance. Yes. Yeah, those are uh -huh. So, you know, I, I do love them so much. So um, working in our curriculum for the dual language, for some reason, every time we have to break a up into small groups and we're either going to work on literacy math or whatever it may be everyone's always like hey put k on social justice um just because i love them so much i'm very passionate about them um so yes so the social justice standards can be found through teachingtolerance.org it's a great organization and they provide a lot of great resources for educators it covers so many different topics. So the social justice standards are broken up into like four quadrants and they are identity, diversity, justice, and action. Within each um, category, there are five different standards. So identity has five standards, diversity has five, justice and action and so forth. Um, and so they're very similar to each other. Like, like the five standards within identity are similar to each other, but they build upon one another. And the wonderful thing about the social justice standards, which I really love, is that they span from grades K all the way through 12, but the standards don't change. The wording changes so that they're cognitively appropriate for that grade level, but the information is still the same. Um, you know, a lot of times people think, well, children in kindergarten can't learn these concepts and absolutely they can we start seeing color and we start noticing differences at a very early age and we create internal biases that we're not even aware of and so if we don't talk about it those things are going to persist 
So mm -hmm. that's why I really like them because they do span through all grade levels and they build upon each other. So you kind of have a, a, a scaffold happening, a vertical alignment as kids are growing up in, in grade levels. If, if an entire school system is using these standards, then the kids are building up on each standard as they're going along, kind of mm -hmm. like any other standard that we use in right. education. Right. Um, so that's, those are the standards that we, we focus on. And the beautiful thing about dual language, um, excuse me if I keep dropping the word beautiful or exciting, I just love them. So with dual language is that, you know, it has different pillars, although right now the pillars are kind of being restructured. So that may change, the structure of them may change, but the idea still remains the same. And one of the pillars, pillar three, is a sociocultural competence. And so if we don't have that, then you're not really dual language. You need to have that. You can't just focus on literacy and children knowing how to read and speak the language. We need to include that within our education and our curriculum. Um, so every time we are creating the different um, um, sorry, the different lessons or, or building on the curriculum, the standards, the social justice standards have to be included every single time. Mm -hmm. And so this is for dual language I'm speaking about, but I feel like it's something that needs to be just carried over into gen ed and it's something and it's just it, regular ed special ed whatever it may be <laughs> right. it needs to be carried into so mm -hmm. that it is something that we are incorporating in all of our lessons as well that yeah. we come from a lens that is very critical of what we are teaching to ensure that we are being anti-bias in our approach mm -hmm. Yeah, can you, um, in case people don't have experience with dual language, because in some places they don't have a dual language program or aren't familiar with it, can you introduce us to what that is? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, there's a lot of different types of um, approaches and programs, and there's bilingual programs, and there's SEI. Um, dual language is very different in that. So when I came to this country, I was placed in a bilingual program. And it was, I will tell you straight up, it was a failed bilingual program because I was just placed there and given watered down content, pretty much. Um, and, and, and it was kind of like we were othered. It, it was those kids that, that can't really learn. Um, and so things were given to us in our native language in Spanish, but it wasn't the, the real content that was being taught in the, in the other classrooms for native English speakers. So when I actually had to transition into the English classroom, I was so lost. I didn't have the content. content. I had developed the vocabulary, um, but I didn't have what I needed to be in that grade level. Mm -hmm. um, so with dual language, you are going in and you're identifying two languages that you want to to teach language of instruction. And the program that we are following is a 90-10, which means that in kindergarten, we start at 90% Spanish mm -hmm. and 10% English. Um, and dual languages, again, it's, it's whatever two languages you choose. So a lot of different places that have Portuguese and English or French okay. and English, but in our area, it's Spanish and English. Um, and then for first grade, it'll be an 80-20. And then for third grade, 70, 30, and it moves on that way. And mm -hmm. the, the purpose of it is to create, um, to have it so that these students become biliterate and bilingual yes. fully in both languages. Um, and there's a lot of studies, a lot of research that proves that, you know, a bilingual brain just expands in, in amazing ways and mm -hmm. it captures information so differently. So it's something we're really excited about because 
um, the studies also show that those students usually after, you know, it starts a little bit slow. And then as the pro they progress, that educational gap we talk so much about is completely right. filled. And they don't just meet the criteria to where their um, counterparts are at, but they over, they, they exceed it which mm -hmm. is really exciting to talk about because this is really something we want to we wanna dive into and seeing those kids succeed. So we're meeting them at their needs and making sure that we are bringing education and, and fulfilling their, their needs for, for being represented and seeing themselves in education as well. Yes, I like that. So then language is considered one of, maybe one facet of identity. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, with, with the dual language program, we explore all of these things. And students don't just learn about their own culture. They're mm -hmm. learning about different cultures. Because that's the other thing. We think, well, representation, they need to have mirrors. And mirrors are very important, extremely. Yeah. Like, like I said earlier, for me, I didn't have mirrors growing up. But we also need to have windows and we need to have doors, which means that students need to have access to other cultures and understanding other people and how, you know, because how do you become anti-bias if you only have a mirror in front of you? Right. So, so we have a lot of issues in education where there's a lot of times where like in my community, we never had mirrors. All we had were windows. That mm -hmm. was it. But then you have in maybe a more affluent community that is um, mostly um, white people. They also only have mirrors. Right. right? But, but the education being taught, the curriculum also um, covers, covers them and everything that they need, um, but they don't have windows. They can't right. see into our world. So, so it's an issue going both ways. Yes. Um, we need mirrors, windows, and doors in all of education. Yes, we absolutely do. So what can you say about the argument that people make? And it sounds like, but we already have Black History Month and Hispanic Heritage Month, so why do we need a whole curriculum mm -hmm. about being anti-bias? And I've actually heard people go to the extent of saying, well, now I feel like I'm being persecuted as a white person because you are taking away from, you know, literature that represents me or my history. Right. Um, and so that's the thing. We can become, one of the important things about, um, doing anti-bias work is becoming self-aware. Um, and anti-bias work is uncomfortable. So I'll tell you from my experience, um, being a, a Latina, for me, um, I'm part of the global majority and I have faced racism and bias. But I have, have, I have had to become self-aware and understand that I'm also white. So you can't see me through a podcast, but I'm white. <laughs> <laughs> my skin color is white um right. and you know my dad's side of the family completely white and then my mom's side of the family black um so I have both sides but I can't um hold on to my mom's side of the family and say well um you know that that's my heritage but I can't take their experiences and make them my own yeah. at the end of the day I'm a white person right. even though I am a Latina my color, the color of my skin is white, which means that I have been afforded certain privileges. And I will tell you right now that that has been a very uncomfortable thing for me. I have not liked <laughs> coming face to face with that because I always saw myself in a marginalized group and never took the chance to see my own privileges. 
So um, with understanding that, that's the thing. We become a little defensive because we feel like all of a sudden we're going to be erased. And we have to understand that um, there's a population of students that have been experiencing erasure for a very, very long time. And so when we're talking about equity and teaching other cultures and teaching um, and going in with an anti-bias lens, lens, we're not talking about removing um, white history. We're talking about leveling the playing field, that it is equitable for all, that you are able to hear and learn about all these different um, cultures and contexts, not just one. And so you know, it's kind of like immediately we're like, well, when being erased? And I want to be like, well, everyone's being erased for so long. <laughs> Take a seat. It's okay. You can sit down for a minute. You know, so um, it's equity. It's, 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 it all right. comes down to equity. So, yeah, so Black History Month is a lot more than just slavery. It is about us being able to learn about the culture and the history and all these amazing people who paved the way. Uh, we're learning about inventors who are, are white. Why aren't we learning about inventors who are black? Um, so this is something that, when we, again, like I mentioned earlier, it is all about equity, understanding that everyone needs to have a seat at the table. And so if we're only giving black history or Hispanic heritage one month out of the year, and then it's tossed to the side, then that's not equitable. If, if the rest of the population is getting a full-on seven months <laughs> of, of being displayed and talked about, then it's okay to share that, that space. Yes. You know, it kind of reminds me, this is a weird connection, but just as you were speaking about this, I thought of it. Recently, there's been a meme going around that shows a picture of a teacher, and it says, if your profession requires an appreciation week. You're not getting paid enough. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's kind of the similar, like a similar idea. If you have to have a special month to talk about a whole group of people, then you're not mm -hmm. talking about everybody the rest of the year. You're only talking exactly. about everybody else. <laughs> right? so, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so that's, <laughs> I think and it's a perfect understand. Yeah, that's a perfect example because if we look at education now and um, trying to go back into the building, all of the comments that you see on social media about teachers and just get back to work or just quit or, you know, all of that appreciation they had for us a couple of months ago, it's gone. That's weird. Right? That's over, guys. That's terrible. <laughs> Oh, it's so hurtful and sad, but yes, it's a similar idea. All the, all yeah. the that you show people during Black History Month, you know, once that month is over. <laughs> that's so yeah. <laughs> and that only addresses, like we were talking about, race, right? And so mm -hmm. what are some other um, factors of identity that we need to be aware of as we're thinking about anti-bias education? Um, so that's the, the, the thing about anti-bias. When I think of anti-bias, I like to think of it kind of like um, an umbrella right? I'm a very visual person and, and it's an umbrella and it covers a lot of different things. And so uh, students bring a lot of different identities to the table. And I tell you, you know, one of the things that I've heard a lot um, is people say, well, maybe I don't really support that or I don't really believe. And so that's where it gets a little tricky where people, we want to bring our own experiences and beliefs mm -hmm. into the classroom, right? And so I understand certain things. I, I get it. But, 
you know, when I am faced with someone who is different than me, their life may be different than mine. It doesn't mean um, that I have to now marginalize them or mistreat them or put them to the side. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we really need to understand that identity is not just talking about race. Identity covers a lot of different things. So anti-racism is a, a portion of anti-bias education. We mm-hmm. may be talking about gender equality. We may be talking about, you know, race is one of them. We may be talking about ableism. You know, we set things up for all of these students that are, are fit perfectly into gen ed but what about all of these students that have different needs so so that's the whole thing about anti-bias it all falls down into equity are we meeting the needs of all of these different students who have different identities this regardless of how we feel about certain things because our job as educators is to come in and make sure that every single one of these students is receiving the proper education that they need regardless of who they are or where they come from. You know, I want, uh, there's a quote that I really like by Mika Pollack. Um, she's an associate professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And she says, but no matter our politics, standing up against hate and for learning is the basic work of education. And who better than us to facilitate it? And so that's our job. We, our job is to be facilitators of education. And through, no matter what our politics are or where we stand what your stance is on immigration you may have a bunch of immigrant students in your classroom that's part of their identity and your stance on immigration may be one that you're like well we shouldn't really have immigrants in here hey you know that's maybe your your stance but that's maybe your political view but standing up against hate and for learning is your job as an educator and so that's, it's our job to facilitate education for all students that come into our classroom, regardless of their background or, or who they are or what their identity is. Yes. And that's, that kind of brings me to a really important question because before an instructional coach, because that's mostly who's listening to this podcast, can support anti-bias education, I'm going to guess there's a lot of soul searching that happens. Oh, yes. Right? <laughs> Um, yeah, because sometimes we don't even we're not even maybe aware of the biases that we have um, and what who what what identities we are uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've actually had conversations with people who say, well, I treat all of my students the same, mm-hmm. but then they'll make remarks about the parents or the home life that mm-hmm. are clearly biased. But they mm-hmm. say, no, but I don't, I don't treat my students differently mm-hmm. right? as if that doesn't kind of filter down into the work that you're doing. So what can that soul searching that we need to go through, what can it look like? And like, how can we work on ourselves before we try to implement anything um, on a campus? You know, I think the biggest thing right now is to have listening ears. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a population of people that have been speaking up for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I include myself in that, that I need to be, I'm someone from a marginalized group. So I need people to listen to me. I do because I have a voice and there's a story that I want to share that I feel people should be able to listen to. But then at the same time, because I know I have white skin and mm-hmm. I have certain privileges, I understand that there are certain times that I need to take a seat and I need to listen. Mm -hmm. I don't have space all the time. 
sometimes I need to listen. And so that's, I think, what it really comes down to, that our emotions get in the way. But wait, but wait, what about my story? What about? And we need to be able to sit down and listen. Because when we start listening to the stories of others and to the experiences of others and how they are asking us to step up, then we can really have our eyes be opened to our own circumstance, our own situation, and the way that we view things. Um, the other thing is, you know, a lot of people uh, on social media, in particular, a lot of educators have been sharing a lot of different books. Listen, do it. <laughs> Read yeah. those books. Because <laughs> it doesn't stop at reading the books. You have right. to actually then take the action. But it's very important for us to, you know, we think of action and we think of these huge things that we need to do, right? Mm -hmm. And and it starts really small. It really does. It starts with, with a change of heart, with an understanding of what anti-bias is, with an understanding of our own internal biases, because I myself have biases. And so one of the things that, like, um, I learned about a lot is that, you know, we think of racism or we think of, of bias, um, particularly racism, and we ascribe to one of two things. We say either you're racist or you're not, right? And the thing is that I feel like we're all racist, every single one of us. Right now, I may be working on anti-bias education, but at some point, something that's internally in me that I didn't even realize may come forth and my, I may act in a racist way. So, so that's where we need to distinguish that, you know, even it, there are a lot of different biases that we have and we bring them to the table without realizing them sometimes. And so it's, you're either you're all in on anti-bias or you're not. And being all in and anti-bias means that you are <clears throat> consistently checking yourself because mm -hmm. I'm speaking on anti-bias right now, but that doesn't exclude me from being a biased person. Right. I, I can be biased. I have biases. And so I have to constantly check them at the door. And the thing about that is that it's uncomfortable because a lot of us go directly immediately to the thought, well, does that make me a bad person? Does that make me a good? And we're not talking about good or bad. We're talking about being self-aware and really checking ourselves to make changes because we have things that are just, we have grown up in a system that is rooted in bias. And so those things have been fed into us and sometimes we don't even realize it. Yeah. So I think that's really where it starts is the listening process, the, the, the reading and the really being self-aware and checking ourselves at every instance that we can um, so that we know when we are acting in a biased way and we can make those changes to improve in that area. Yes. Being really reflective and kind of, and analyzing your thinking and noticing what do mm -hmm. I how do I react in these situations? What do I think? What is my gut mm -hmm. to do? You know, and that can really help you see what your biases are. And it can be surprising because you can feel like, well, I'm, but I, I treat everybody the same and I, I, I value everyone, but just because of what we've been exposed to, you know, our whole lives and, you know, what TV and movies and, you know, books choose, like what is put out in there, out there for the general public to consume. And I mean, just representation and, and the way people are represented whenever they have different identities, it's, it's, it's just rife with bias. And so we do mm -hmm. have to really analyze what we think because we have been, we are a product of everything we have consumed our whole lives. Um, mm -hmm. Even if we don't want to be, <laughs> even if we yep. don't 
to be that person. Sometimes we are, um, often we are. And so we have to really be thoughtful and honest with ourselves. Sometimes we mm -hmm. like to lie to ourselves and pretend that everything's fine, but we can't. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah. and you mentioned that a lot of teachers say, oh, but I treat everyone the same. And it's like, well, when you have a student that is struggling with understanding, with phonological awareness, let's say, and they have a student that has no issues in that, do you treat them the same? Do you instruct them the same? You don't. Right. Um, so, so this is not about treating everyone the same. We want to live in a colorblind world and that's not the way to move forward. Um, color is there. Race is there. Um, mm -hmm. Different abilities are there. And so we have to recognize identity because when we are trying to treat everyone the same, we think we're doing the right thing, but we are contributing to the erasure of students' identities. Right. Yes, absolutely. And valuing that identity because it is a part of our students is important. Mm -hmm. um, how can once you know as, as we're working through this and we're kind of self-reflecting and we're deciding that yes our campus needs to move forward in this how can an instructional coach initiate this work on their campus because you mentioned like you have a social justice committee um, so what can that look like if a coach wants to kind of start getting making this process happen um, you know <laughs> I have to tell you it's gonna be uncomfortable it's not an easy walk mm -hmm. it's not an easy walk and right now admin have a lot of work on their hands. Coaches have a lot of work on their hands because all of a sudden the country has been woken up to their realities, right? And so you're gonna find admin and coaches trying to move forward to bring things about and you're gonna get pushback. You are. Because not we still have the, you know, people believing that um, we shouldn't be talking about race and we shouldn't be talking about identity and all of these things. And so I think it's important for um, coaches in particular and admin to really have a, a, an honest conversation with the people they're working with. Mm -hmm. And I think if we're talking education, the heart of it is what I mentioned earlier in, the, in that quote is that our job is to facilitate education. Mm -hmm. And so we are data-driven people. We love to look at data. We love to break it down. We love to triangulate it. It's all wonderful. But if data doesn't move our, the needle one way or the other, then data is useless. Mm -hmm. And so if we're, we're looking at the reality of our country, we need to bring it down to education, to talking about, hey guys, the data is showing us that there is need in this area. So how are we gonna break this down to move forward? Mm -hmm. And I think um, it really starts with starting to hold our districts accountable. <laughs> um, for the curriculum that we're given. Um, mm -hmm. And also, you know, particularly for coaches, I think it's also listening and making space for other voices different than their own. So, you know, if you're a coach who comes from a, a white lens, let's say, and you have a staff um, of people of color, mm -hmm. then that's going to look very different than if you're a white coach with white teachers. Mm -hmm. It is yeah. because, yeah, because as a coach, if you're a coach that's coming in and you have people of the global majority that you are supporting, then you have to make sure that you are having those sessions where you are listening, you are taking in what they have to share. Um, mm -hmm. So I think the coaches have a really big job when it comes to this, because it's going to be a lot of listening and it's mm -hmm. also going to be a lot of guidance just guiding those teachers that need that and just being comfortable and being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. we have to open up the table to having these conversations. We can't close the door to it. So the very first step is that we need to engage in the conversation. We need to talk about it and we need to move forward, look at the data and figure out how we're going to do this. We mm -hmm. need to be joining organizations that are culturally relevant and bring about change. Um, you know, there's so many different things. We need to move from punitive punishments into a restorative justice um, to repair and, and, and restore relationships. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I know you asked me, like, where to start. <laughs> like, you like, have such a long list right now to do. And so I, you can really get started. <laughs> and I'm throwing all this at you. But um, I guess it all comes down to, to what we mentioned earlier is don't lead without listening. Mm -hmm. Because I think we all, we all have the good intentions right now. Mm -hmm. But we've all heard this. Impact is greater than intention. Mm -hmm. And so we may have really good intentions and we want to take the bull by the horns and we want to move forward and implement all of this PD and all of these things and you're going to learn it. You're going to learn it. You know, I know, but I think honestly, you know, we're going to create a great divide if we don't move in a way where we are taking the time to listen, absorb the information and then put it into practice. But if we want to throw 10 books at our teachers, and say, read this, read this, read this. We want to have all of these, you know, it's, it's, um, it's like when you're, when you're, um, you don't know something for a long time and all of a sudden you're awake to it. You want to just run with it. And the people who have been there already doing the work are like, okay, you need to sit down and take a chill. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, Hey coaches, I know you're going to be really excited about moving forward, getting the work done. You have to get the work done but you have to take it in stride and you have to learn how to listen, listen to your teachers, listen to the, you know, read the room, <laughs> um, the, the climate um, and, and be open to admitting when you've made a mistake and, and things that you need to rectify to move forward. Um, and another thing would be that you want to make sure that, you have these conversations with your admins first and foremost, mm -hmm. because we can go in and, and coaches can go in and try to have all of these things that they want to implement. Um, but if admin is not behind it, all these things fall apart. Yes. You, you have to have these tough conversations with administration um, because they can make or break what we're trying to do and how we're trying to move forward. Um, and I hope that answered your question because I just went all over the place and told you all these different things. <laughs> I think it's some good advice. I think listening first is always good advice, especially for coaches because of the position that you're in. And, and I think communicating with, with administration is again, always important because yeah, efforts that are not supported by admin will usually, um, either get shut down or fizzle out. And Absolutely. Yeah, I think that having those conversations with your administration and then sort of saying something along the lines of, I'd like to start out maybe with a small group of teachers and just have maybe a dialogue, maybe we can yep. read something and just a group of teachers who are interested. So making it something that people can opt into and you can kind of start to get a feel for doing the work that way because it is very different. Um, yep. Because you're dealing, even whenever you think about, okay, I'm teaching you guided reading, how to do guided reading, and you want to do round robin, and round robin is not a best practice, and I have Oh, to God, no, no. Right? <laughs> right? Oh, round so robin. <laughs> 
so you want to do this and I'm telling you I have to tell you why that's not a good idea this is a whole <laughs> I used to say growing up all the time a whole nother level of, of <laughs> uncomfortable conversation right so mm -hmm. <laughs> you thought you were uncomfortable having the Rob Robin conversation this is going to be a whole other thing so this is like starting with a group of people who can opt in and you can kind of um, start building, even talking about this, like it, it, having conversations about anti-bias anti requires comfort in talking about uncomfortable things or things that you maybe don't know a lot about. I know I've had to do a lot of that work um, myself whenever I have initiated things or initiated conversations with people. I feel very uninformed and I have to really think about, you know, what is it that I want to say? you know, what, how, how am I expressing this? Am I expressing this appropriately? You know, and, and, and it is this really what I'm trying to say? How does this, how does my life fit into this? How does, how do I perceive other people? And it's, it's a lot of thinking. It can be exhausting. Yeah. So I think smart, yeah. it's small on a small scale is probably your best bet. And then you can say, I think that as a team, maybe we can take this to our campus. And now yep. you have representation from people on your campus and you have input and you have ideas ideas that you've shared together and you've built a language together and I think that that just takes time so so starting small and you know maybe an optional book study or an optional you know idea study where you're learning about the idea through different mediums that might be the way to go even if maybe three people opt in that's three people who are doing this work that weren't doing the work so you know just just start start somehow yeah <laughs> start <Yep>. small <laughs> so, mm -hmm. Start small, move forward. And I think always be aware of the voices that you are letting in and listening to because it, it can be a, a, a slippery slope where, you know, for instance, some people, you know, they may say, well, let's have a diverse community night where, you know, we bring all of the families and we celebrate culture. Um, like, let's say for, for me growing up in the Latino community, you know, the teachers wanted to include, let's have a Latino night. But uh -huh. then all of the teachers were putting it together and you walk in and it's all sombreros and tacos. Oh, and it's putting out the stuff. Oh my God. <laughs> I thought that they were having you bring something from home or something. Right? Oh man. So, you know, it's like, oh, okay. So you're Aren't trying you to represent. Now? <laughs> from home, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, thank you for trying to represent us and include us, but you did it right. from a very limited lens. Um, that's yeah. not that's who we cool. are. That's the impact intention thing, right? Impact. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's so, you know, we wait, may want to move forward like, yeah, we're going to be anti-bias now and we're going to do all this work. And then all of a sudden, again, we're doing more harm than good because we are not listening to the voices that have been in the trenches and can speak up and have the experiences. Mm -hmm. So thin line. And we need to always be aware of that at yeah. all times. Mm -hmm. Very true. I feel like our first efforts in any kind of work like this are always terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you, I don't know if anyone listens to a lot of different podcasts, but I listen to several, lots, lots of podcasts. Many of them are business related because that is an area that I did not go to school for, and mm -hmm. so I am learning. Um, and uh, I, so I, that's the way I kind of build up that that knowledge base. And recently, they've realized that racism is a thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And they are having guests on, which I, I'm thankful that they are. But sometimes they're like, oh, I know a black person. I can have this. Black oh, my God. Tell me about racism. And you can tell they're just they're, they're trying to do something. But our first mm -hmm. efforts are often not great because we mm -hmm. don't know what we're doing or talking about. And we are learning. 
So if you approach it as a learning, like I am here learning, we are here learning together. Let us, let us see what we learn. Yep, <laughs> you know? We are going to try to make this as, um, as sincere as possible that we are all going through this process together. Nobody is an expert. We are all figuring things out. You know, I think you can set the tone, maybe constructing norms for that group as a group, you know, in collaboratively yes. would be really important because this is, this is a different kind of work than, yep. um, than many of the conversations yeah. we have. Those norms are very important because you want to make sure that the space is safe. You want to have safe spaces for those conversations because what usually happens is if someone is starting to speak up, they're from a marginalized group and they're saying, well, yes, this is the way that we've experienced. Sometimes those spaces can be very uncomfortable and they can have pushback or, and we never want that. You will, you want to make sure that all of these spaces are always safe. Yes. And then sometimes someone from a privileged group is trying to learn, but it, it's hard because they're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing. Right. We're saying the wrong thing. Right. And we yep. probably frequently do that. So, yep. <laughs> and it's part of the learning process. And so it can be hard for someone in a marginalized group to hear someone in a privileged group work through these things that are uncomfortable and that were directly harming the person in the marginalized group. Right. Yep. So it's, it's a touchy thing that we want to make sure that we are supportive of people as they go through this process, as long as they are trying to go through this process, you know? Right. Oh yeah, that's maybe maybe get your counselor involved. <laughs> that's what I would do. Get my school counselor involved for sure, um, because I'd want to make sure that we have someone with a background in that area as well. Not that they're there to counsel the teachers necessarily, but they have um, some frameworks that they can help support you in dialogue and in, in communicating with subjects that are that can be difficult. So that mm -hmm. might be a good support person, depending on your counselor. Could be a good support person. True. <laughs> <laughs> So who are some of the people that you like to learn from about anti-bias education? Hmm. <laughs> um, well, like teachers online? Sure. Or anybody. I know that, you know, I'm, Instagram is not PD, right? But it's certainly <laughs> a doorway to a lot of things. I, just by following Tamara Russell and Naomi O'Brien and just by following people, I have learned so much that I want to learn more about. So it kind of is like a like a diving board. Like they just give you a little bit of information and then you're like, Oh, I didn't know about that. And then you dig into something else, you know? So yeah. like that has really helped me. So yeah, if there are people online you learn from, if there are you know, Instagram people you learn from, if there are, you know, YouTube videos that you love, I mean, whatever it is that you, whatever source of information, articles, anything that's great. Got it. Well, um, since I mentioned the social justice standards, obviously, um, teaching tolerance.org, um, absolutely just a wealth of knowledge and information. Um, there is a website that someone sent me and I'll have to send you the link and maybe we could put it up, um, when oh, you put in the information yeah. in the show notes. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it's about diverse books. And so we talk a lot about diverse books, but we also have to be critical um, of a diverse collection of books because even sometimes when a book is written by, let's say a black person, we may think, Oh, this book is, is wonderful, but it may still be problematic because the illustrations, the illustrator may have not portrayed it correctly. You know, when it comes down to yeah, when we're talking about publishing, sometimes you don't have a, a choice on who the the, the um, illustrator is going to be in the illustration, you right. know, all of those things. So you, we always want to make sure that we check those things. So I will make sure, I'm sorry that I don't have it no, like, okay. at the top of my head right now, the name, but I will make sure to sh um, share that. 
a book that I am reading right now that has been really good is Courageous Conversations About Race, um, written by Glenn Singleton. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's exclusively talks about race. It's very black and white as a book, um, but it pushes us forward to make those safe spaces and really be uncomfortable in those situations and have those conversations that need to be had about race in order to improve education. And I really like it because it's, it's focused on education and the systemic issues that we have um, in our country. And, and you mentioned Naomi and, of course, Lanisha. My girls, I love them <laughs> so much. So, yes, Apron Education and Read Like a Rockstar. Love those women. I've learned so much from them. Um, I talk a lot with Lanisha over Marco Polo. It's wonderful. We have these back and forth. So we have these conversations. And I have questions sometimes. And she's always there. And we just have dialogues. And so that's something important. We should always find that one person or two people that we can have conversations with that are those safe spaces. Um, Ibram X. Kendi, amazing author. I've learned so much from him. He was the one that really opened up my eyes to understanding that, hey, um, you may qualify or, or, or put yourself in the position of being an anti-biased person, but you're still biased. <laughs> right. You're trying, um, but you're still biased. Right? <laughs> yes. um, so I've learned a lot from him. And then you know, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but I am, um, I work a lot in ministry. My husband and I are ordained ministers. So yeah, so we like to read a lot of, of books uh, that have to do with that too, with, you know, with our approach, because even within our, our religion and, and our evangelical views, we can be very biased. So one author that I really enjoy is Jamar Tisby. Um, the Color of Compromise is a wonderful book, and it really calls us to understand that we've been complicit in, in a lot of this. Um, so, amazing author as well. And I think, you know, I don't want to overwhelm you with a list, but I can send you a list of things <laughs> so that you can add to the show notes. But okay. I think, yeah. You can start there. <laughs> okay, great. Yes, I love that. Um, yes, I'm, I'm Catholic, and my husband actually works for the Catholic Church. Uh, funny story, he almost was going to be, he was going to be a priest, and he went to seminary school for a couple of years. Aren't you glad he didn't? <laughs> that for me, I'll tell you that. But yeah, <laughs> but that's always been something that he wanted to do was serve the church, and then they had an opening mm -hmm. that was his exact job description. So now that's what he does, which is amazing. Oh, that's wonderful. And yeah, but with, but absolutely, lots of bias within our church as well. And, um, you know, some of that is still being perpetuated. It's not, it's it's done under, you know, maybe these are, this is what we believe, therefore we are biased against these things. And that's not really, I don't believe that's the real intent, you know, of anything really. We yeah. shouldn't, that should never be our intent. So, so okay, so these are great places that coaches can go to learn about these ideas. Um, and I will put those in the show notes, absolutely. I'll just, you know, link them up down there. And so if people walk away with just one idea today, what should it be? Huh. <laughs> I have a list. I just I know, know. right? Another list. <laughs> Um, you know, the biggest idea, it's what I've been mentioning throughout, is listen and be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. That's that's really where we need to start, mm -hmm. It's the listening. Not to dive in immediately without listening. You will do so much more harm than good. 
again, and impact versus intent, right? Um, so that would be the greatest thing. Listen and start researching. Um, start there. Start at teaching tolerance. That's a great place to start and understanding those social justice standards because if we're talking education and implementing these standards within our curriculum, that's a great place to start because we have to start dismantling our curriculums. But yeah, listening, listening and being um, comfortable with being uncomfortable because I guarantee you it's going to get uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. And listen in person. And we can also, we, like, we can follow people who are very different. It's honestly my social media feed. I've tried to diversify it so that Absolutely. I can different perspectives. And so I see that all of the time. And that has helped me challenge some things and, and even just become aware of some things that I thought that I didn't know I thought, <laughs> you know, yeah, well, that really helps. Um, so that's one easy, that's an easy way to listen. If you don't have a community around you that you feel like is really, um, especially diverse that you can listen to different voices. Maybe if you're in a community that looks a lot like you and your friends look a lot like you and you're like, I don't know, how do I learn about this? Diversify your Instagram feed. Follow some of these people that, that Kay mentioned today. Um, start to, to expose yourself to different ideas. And then suddenly you're like, oh, I didn't even know. Exactly. We're out there. You know? And it really yeah. is. Well, that's helped me a lot. So that's something yeah. that I can recommend too. A lot of us live in a bubble and we don't even know it. Right. <laughs> friends who are like us. I mean, honestly, in El Paso here, it's where I live. It's difficult to be friends with people who aren't really like you because it's such a, as far as race goes, there's such a small population of people that are not the same race as me, you yeah. know, and the yeah. same ethnicity, you know, and so that makes it tricky um, to diversify in person. It can, mm -hmm. but I can diversify that's not the only way that you can diversify your life. You can find people who speak different languages and people who are of different um, gender identities and people who are um, even just different, a different lifestyle than yours. Yep. It's a start, right? So we have to look kind of beyond that superficial thing and see what can we do to, to have our life full of different kinds of people so that we can become aware of what we think and we can, help, like we can open our brains up to different people. So where can we find you online? I am on Instagram. It's where I spend a lot of my time. <laughs> um, a primary cornerstone. That's my, um, my handle. And I am on Facebook too, but honestly, I really don't post much there. So don't even just disregard that. You, you can just <laughs> pretend <laughs> I never said that. <laughs> Um, and I, ha I do have a website and sadly I haven't updated it as much as I probably should. Um, been busy doing a lot of studying, but, um, I do have some, some good posts up there. If I don't say so myself, um, <laughs> where I, ex <laughs> I expand on some of these things as well. And that's primarycornerstone.com. So, all right, great. Yeah? So mostly my website and Instagram. Okay. Those are the two best places to find you. So I appreciate so much that you came on to talk to us today. This was such a good conversation. I really enjoyed it myself. And it's been so helpful to think about what we can do, how we can start, what kinds of thinking we need to be doing and the changes we need to make in our lives in order to really be supportive of anti-bias education because it's so meaningful for our students. So thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. 
That's <laughs> great. Yay. All right. So coaches, um, that's your next steps. Check out the show notes and you can find one of these sources of information that Kay shared today to choose from um, to get started. And I really think that Kay offered us some great ideas. So I hope that you implement some of this or at least start doing some thinking around these ideas so that we can we can make the change. Coaches have so much impact on the direction of the school goes. So we can be really supportive of change on our campuses. And happy coaching. Thank you for listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Want more coaching ideas? Check me out at buzzingwithmissb.com and on Instagram at buzzingwithmissb. If you love the show, share it with a coach who would love it too, or leave me a review on iTunes. It's free and it helps others find this show. Happy coaching. Happy coaching.